Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. I'm your host, Mike Waller. To start this week, I want to tip my cap to the late, great Vin Scully, who passed away last week. There have been a lot of tributes to Vin, and they're all well-deserved. What an amazing life that man led. He grew up in New York in the 30s near the Polo Grounds at a time when Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mel Ott, and Carl Hubble were dominating the baseball scene in New York. He famously fell in love with baseball after walking by a Chinese laundry that had the Yankees-Giants World Series game line score posted in the storefront window. There were so many great moments for Vin. For 67 years, he was the voice of the Dodgers, but he was really the voice of baseball for the better part of 50 years. He had his own sound, he was an amazing storyteller, and could run a game solo all the way to the end of his career at a time when two and even three-person booths were the standard. He did a lot of amazing things. He raced Jackie Robinson on ice skates the very first time Jackie ever skated. For real, you can look it up. He moved with the Dodgers from Brooklyn to L.A. He was there when Robinson broke the color line. He called Sandy Koufax's perfect game. He was there when Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's career home run record. He called the catch when Joe Montana hit Dwight Clark for an NFL all-time classic comeback to beat the Dallas Cowboys, which eventually led to a Super Bowl championship for the 49ers. He had one of the most iconic calls ever on Kirk Gibson's pinch hit home run in the 1988 World Series. Ironically, at the exact same moment that legend Jack Buck had one of the most iconic calls on the same play. He had the humanity to delicately call a PGA tournament where a golfer was literally neck deep in a moon crater of a sand trap, chasing an almost impossible out. Heck, he had a game call in Kevin Costner's For Love of the Game, and to listen to Vin call it, you could hardly tell it was scripted. He was just a natural at capturing an audience. I grew up in Iowa watching the Cubs on WGN. Harry Carey was my voice of baseball growing up, and I loved him. In his heyday, Harry was a great announcer, but by the 1980s, he was an iconic, fun announcer. Sitting in the bleachers with his shirt off, chasing foul balls with a fishing net, and loving his Budweiser in the seventh inning stretch. While Harry was my voice, I also recognized the greatness of the national voices. I caught the very end of Mel Allen's career on This Week in Baseball. I heard a lot of Bob Costas, Jack Buck, and other greats, but Vince Scully always made me pause. In the last 15 years, with much more access to radio feeds through the Sirius XM, Satellite Radio, and the Major League at Bat app, I had access to every team. I'm usually the last person in my house to go to bed, so I had a lot of opportunities to tune into a Dodgers game and just listen to Vin Wax Poetic. I'm not a Dodgers fan. In fact, I'm very much not a Dodgers fan. But those summer nights with Vin were magic. He had a million stories, and he could tell them all while still giving a crystal clear description of the action on the field. And when there was a huge moment, he made the call and got out of the way. He let the game and the players and the crowd speak for themselves. There have been so many amazing stories told and some great memorials to Vin Scully this week. Friday, the Dodgers played their first home game since his passing and had a beautiful tribute. At Wrigley, the Cubs went to Vin for the seventh inning stretch. It was a recording from his first trip to Chicago after the passing of Harry Carey. Vin tipped his hat to Harry one more time. It was perfect. Rest in peace, Vin. You'll never be forgotten. Now back to the Cubs. So about the trade deadline. It happened. Or something happened. It happened, but not in the way that any of us thought it would. The Cubs did trade four relievers, but did not move their two biggest names, Wilson Contreras or Ian Happ. They did not trade any position players, which means Patrick Wisdom and Rafael Ortega are still Cubs, and they also did not trade any starting pitchers, probably due to injuries. The last homestand was all about the Cubs' goodbye tours for Contreras and Happ, but surprise, they're still here. Wilson thrilled the crowd Friday afternoon with a two-run homer in the eighth to lead the Cubs to a 2-1 to win over the Marlins. There's been a lot of reaction, a lot of shock, some anger, and some joy. A lot of fans fall into one of two camps. 
that Jed Hoyer screwed this up by overvaluing his hand and not being able to move Contreras. And those who now see that the Cubs have some additional runway to try to get a contract extension done with Wilson. I'm personally in the second group. I think Jed had a value he wanted to get for Wilson, and if that level of offer was not made, he has other options, such as a contract extension or to give Wilson what's called a qualifying offer. The Contreras would either accept as a one-year deal or reject, which is the most likely scenario, and then the Cubs would get a compensation draft pick in return. The qualifying offer is an opportunity for teams to extend a one-year contract to players heading to free agency that is the mean value of the top 125 highest-paid players in baseball. I've seen estimates that this year a qualifying offer will be roughly $19 million for one season. Contreras would have the opportunity to take that deal to play for the 2023 Cubs or reject it and go to free agency. If he rejects it, the team that signs him would lose a draft pick, and the Cubs would get a compensatory pick, which would come after the second round in next year's draft, since the Cubs are not a team that receives revenue sharing from MLB. That pick would likely fall between picks 72 and 80, depending on how many compensation picks there are and where the Cubs finish in the draft order. If this latter scenario were to play out, Contreras could potentially be hurt a bit in free agency because the loss of a pick could lead some teams to look at other players not attached to qualifying offers. We'll see how this turns out. Contreras is 30 years old, but will be the best offensive catcher on the market by far. He's had some injury problems the last few years, but this year he's shown he can stay healthy by managing his time at catcher and using him at DH. He could also play some first base as well to help keep his bat in the lineup while minimizing the wear and tear that catching brings. Conventional wisdom before the deadline was that he'd get traded, and now it seems the conventional wisdom is that he'll reject the qualifying offer and hit free agency. We'll see. I think the trade market may mean that his free agent market won't be as hot as people maybe thought. I'll also acknowledge that the deadline is different than free agency, and there were teams selling off the deadline that might be interested in bringing him in to catch and or play DH, but if he and his agent think the market might not be there for a big deal, where the Phillies' JT Realmuto is the highest paid catcher at $23.1 million per year for five years, Wilson might decide to take the one-year $19-ish million qualifying offer, which would slot him in as the third highest catcher behind Realmuto and the Royals' Salvador Perez. The qualifying offer would be a roughly $10 million raise for Wilson over what he's making this year. I would still put an extension or free agency as the most likely options, but I think the trade deadline just increased the chances that Wilson takes the qualifying offer. We'll see. Ian Happ was the other big name on the trading block for the Cubs. I'm less surprised that he stayed than Contreras, largely because he's still under team control for the 2023 season. The Cubs certainly put a high price tag on Happ because of that extra year of control for a power-hitting switch hitter who gets on base a lot, and obviously that price was not met. The Cubs have several options with Happ. They could start talking contract extension, they could trade him in the offseason, or they can keep him for next year and just see how things play out. Should the Cubs have traded Happ? The yes side of the argument says that the Cubs are solid on young outfield prospects and already have Seiya Suzuki in place in right field, and that this was an opportunity to sell high for once. The no side isn't really saying that they shouldn't have traded him, but rather that there was no need for the Cubs to take less than they thought he was worth just to move him. Personally, I'm happy to see him stay for now, as I like him both as a player and a podcaster. For those who haven't listened to The Compound, it's worth checking out. It's co-hosted by Hap, Dakota Meckes, who's currently pitching in AAA Iowa, and Zach Short, a former Cubs minor league shortstop who was traded to Detroit by the Cubs in 2020 for Cameron Mabin. Hap seems to be a really likable baseball guy, so it's not a bad thing to keep someone like him around. For the trades the Cubs did make, there were three expected trades. Closer David Robertson and relievers Michael Givens and Chris Martin. And there was one surprise deal, Scott Efros, who was traded to the Yankees. I'll hit the Chris Martin trade first, as the return for him was neither a prospect nor a pitcher. 
The Cubs sent Martin to the Dodgers for utility guy Zach McKinstry. McKinstry is 27. He's had great success in the minor leagues with the, in the Dodgers system. Most every season posting an OPS of 850-plus, sometimes over 900. But he hasn't been able to stick in the majors. It could be that he's a 4A-type player who just can't get over the hump in the majors and will never be good enough. Or it could be that in L.A. with a loaded lineup, and I mean historically loaded, that he just couldn't get enough regular play to get into a rhythm to succeed. McKinstry falls into the profile of versatile players the Cubs like. He can play all around the infield and he can play the outfield. He could be a lefty version of Christopher Morrell. More on this play later, but this seems like a roll of the dice on the Dodgers talent development machine, which often isn't a bad bet. If he can be a major league quality utility player, that's a solid return for Martin, who was pretty good this year, but not dominant. Scott Efros was the second deal at the deadline after Martin, and the biggest surprise other than Wilson not being traded. The Cubs sent him to the Yankees for their number seven overall prospect and number two pitching prospect, Hayden Wisniewski. A 24-year-old starter, Wisniewski has already had success in AAA. In the Yankees' farm system this year, he's made 19 starts and thrown 89 and two-thirds innings with a whip, which is walks plus hits per innings pitched, of 1.149 with 83 strikeouts and 28 walks. That's a pretty ridiculous ratio. He's a big power arm who can hit upper 90s with the fastball and reportedly has an excellent slider. This is the kind of arm the Cubs have been piling up. The Cubs obviously want to develop starters. I mean, who doesn't? But if you build up a supply of power arms, they can start, they can become multiple inning relievers, or work out of the back end of the bullpen. The initial response to the Efros trade on social media was pretty negative, as Efros is a popular young reliever, he's a rookie this year, with five years of team control remaining. I'm a big fan of Scott Efros, maybe thanks in part to the Haps podcast. The compound does love them some Scotty Efros. But generally speaking, if you can trade a reliever, especially a 28-year-old reliever for a potential starter who's close to Major League Ready, that's a good move. Wisniewski did get hammered in his debut at Iowa on Sunday, but one outing does not make a trend, and I'm sure he was extra amped up to make an impression. We'll see how he goes from here. When the Cubs signed David Robertson to a deal this offseason, it was just for a year, and it was to see if the Cubs could rejuvenate the 37-year-old former closer. He came in with some hopes, but no major expectations. He's been great from the start. He's throwing multiple innings when the Cubs needed him to. He's been the most reliable arm and what turned out to be a pretty good bullpen. He was seen as the best closer on the market at the deadline until the Padres traded for Josh Hader in a surprise move by the Brewers. The Cubs sent Robertson to the Phillies and got back a young pitching prospect, Ben Brown, in return. Brown is a big power arm, six foot six with a fastball in the upper 90s and a 92-93 mile an hour slider. At the start of the season, the 22-year-old Brown was, quote, just 24th on the Phillies' top prospect list. But that's due in part to the fact that he had Tommy John surgery in 2019, and then he missed 2020 rehabbing along with the rest of the minor league players in the COVID shutdown, and then only came back for part of last season. In 2022, he's been healthy. With the Phillies' high-A affiliate Jersey Shore, he started 15 games and posted a 1.2 whip in 73 innings with a ridiculous 105 strikeouts to 23 walks. He'd been promoted to double-A just before the trade, and the Cubs assigned him to the Tennessee Smokies. He also made his Cubs debut on Sunday, throwing five innings while giving up one run on four hits and two walks with, wait for it, nine strikeouts. Hell of a start for that kid. If he stays healthy, he looks like the kind of prospect that can shoot up the rankings fast. It's unlikely he'll be in Chicago this season, but look for him to be added to the 40-man roster this offseason and then begin competing next spring. Those who look only at Brown's number 24 Phillies prospect ranking might be disappointed, but I've seen mid-season post-deadline prospect lists, such as the one at Bleed Cubby Blue, slotting Brown in around number 12 overall for the Cubs, right around where DJ Hers and Alexander Canario are rated. The last trade the Cubs made came right in before the deadline. 
when they sent setup man Michael Givens to the Mets for 22-year-old relief prospect Sal Gonzalez. I think the Cubs see him as a developmental project. This year he's had a 1.2 whip in 28 innings with 31 strikeouts to 8 walks. He doesn't have as much upside as Brown or Wisniewski, and he doesn't throw as hard, but he's had success. He's six foot seven with a low 90s fastball, and he fits the profile of guys the Cubs have had some level of success with in the pitch lab by either adding another pitch or tweaking his repertoire or increasing his velocity. Personally, I would have liked to see a guy like Gonzalez in return as part of a larger package for multiple players, but as a one-to-one with Givens, it's not a terrible trade. Not as good as the Efros and Robertson returns, but I wouldn't expect Givens to bring back as much either. This trade does make me think of the trade last year when the Cubs sent Andrew Chafin to the Oakland A's for Greg Dykeman and Daniel Palencia. At the time, it seemed Dykeman, the AAA outfielder, was the primary get with Palencia as a throw-in. But Palencia has exploded this year. Last year, Palencia had a whip of 1.6 and was getting crushed in low A ball. This year at High A South Bend, Palencia has had 16 starts and in 60 innings, he's posted a very good 1.227 whip with 79 strikeouts to only 28 walks. His profile is rising fast. To that point on Sunday, just coming back from an ankle injury, he threw three perfect innings, striking out his first six hitters and seven overall on 35 pitches. We'll see what the Cubs pitching infrastructure can do with Gonzalez to see if this proves out to be a good return. But I think he might have looked better as an add-on piece in another deal as opposed to being the only return in this one. With those trades in the books, the Cubs have made some interesting moves, but didn't wind up with the prospect hall that most of us expected due to the players they did not trade. The guys who were not traded, Contreras, Hap, Ortega, Wisdom, and starting pitchers Wade Miley and Drew Smiley, have tightened up what looked like was going to be a wide-open audition for playing time in the second half of the season. The bullpen did open four big slots, so we'll get to see a number of arms auditioning for 2023 roster spots. The first few guys up are Kervin Castro, claimed off waivers from San Francisco after the deadline, Anderson Espinoza, who was the return for trading Jake Marisnik to the Padres last year, and Michael Rucker, who at 28 might be on his last run with the Cubs unless he can really stick this time. Miley probably wasn't traded because he's been hurt most of the season. Drew Smiley had been hurt earlier this year, but he's been back pitching largely well for a few weeks. Not trading him was a surprise, but there is a mutual option for him to be back with the Cubs next season, which could help the overall pitching depth. Still, Smiley was very good with the Braves out of the bullpen in their run last postseason, and he's a guy who has shown to be a very versatile lefty and can get some big outs. With the starting rotation largely intact now with Smiley, Marcus Stroman, Justin Steele, Keegan Thompson, and Adrian Sampson all throwing pretty well recently, we'll see what kind of spots open up for players like Caleb Killian to get back to Wrigley for looks late this season. What may happen is with Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson pitching more this season than they ever have in their career, the Cubs may opt to maybe insert a sixth starter or start to piggyback some guys and and give some of those guys shorter outings and let the second person come in for multiple innings. We'll see. They have some options. The biggest logjam, however, is with the position players. The Cubs have eight field positions and nine batting order slots to fill every day. Happen Contreras being traded would have opened up two big holes, and potential deals for Ortega and Patrick Wisdom could have opened two more. I've talked a lot about how this season is for answering questions. The Cubs have answered some. The Cubs no longer have Ildemaro Vargas, Jonathan Villar, or Andrelton Simmons on the roster. Jason Hayward's been hurt with a vague, mysterious injury that makes me wonder if we'll see him back again this season. Alfonso Rivas is back to AAA after not hitting, and Frank Schwindel may be on his last run with the Cubs if he can't turn things around. On the current active roster, I think there are four pretty obvious no-brainer Major League starter-level players. Wilson Contreras, Ian Happ, Seiya Suzuki, and Nico Horner. 
There are several more guys who are either close to legit starter level or platoon level legit major league bench guys like Christopher Morrell, Patrick Wisdom, Rafael Ortega, and Jan Gomes. I think we have a pretty good idea at this point who those guys are, at least at a minimum. Morrell looks very promising and is going to contend for Rookie of the Year honors if he keeps up this kind of performance. And Patrick Wisdom is a legit Major League power bat, though he's probably a platoon player or a bench bat on a contending team. The rest of the season needs to put a big spotlight on the players after those guys. The guys fighting to hang on to roster spots and young guys who will be pushing for more playing time in 2023 and beyond. There is a roster crunch in the infield with the addition of McKinstry. Designating Simmons for assignment, which means he needs to pass through Major League Baseball's waiver process where every team will have a chance to claim him, and if none do, the Cubs will likely release him, frees up one spot. But you now have P.J. Higgins, Nick Madrigal, Zach McKinstry fighting for infield playing time with Schwindel, Morrell, Horner, and Wisdom. Schwindel has been hurt for much of the year, but he's 30, and I don't know how much longer the Cubs can wait. He was so much fun last year when he was living his best life after Anthony Rizzo was traded. For two months, he was one of the, legitimately one of the best hitters in baseball, and he turned Chicago into the Schwindy City. But one of the questions we had this year was to find out whether last year was, was who he is or whether last year was a two-month fluke. At this point, it seems more like a fluke, and I'm not sure how much longer he can be taking at-bats in Chicago, even if he might be having a bad back hinder his performance. Rivas hasn't hit, but he's better defensively, and P.J. Higgins and Patrick Wisdom can also play first base. Horner is locked into shortstop this year, so Madrigal, McKinstry, Morrell, and Wisdom will all see time at second base, third base, and DH. Madrigal and McKinstry in particular may be battling for a roster spot at this point. Madrigal has been hurt much of this year after coming over from the White Sox last year in the Craig Kimbrell deal, but when he has played, the high-contact hitter has had a ton of weak contact and probably not produced very much. He's been hitting better since coming back, so we'll see if he can put together the 300-plus batting average he posted on the south side before the trade last year. McKinstry is off to a rough 0-14 start with six strikeouts with the Cubs. Between the two, McKinstry is faster, a better defender, can play more positions than Madrigal. But if he can't hit, he can't play. In the outfield, what had been a Hap, Ortega, Morrell, and Suzuki rotation really needs to find a way to include more Nelson Velasquez and ideally incorporate at least Narciso Crook and Jackson Frazier, formerly Clint. These guys need more looks, especially Frazier, who came over from the Yankees on a one-year deal to see if he could live up to his former first-round draft pick potential. These guys need more looks to help shape what the Cubs do in the offseason. With Hap staying put at the deadline and Suzuki in place in right field and prospects Brennan Davis and Pete Armstrong pushing hard for Major League time, now is the time to get a good read on Velazquez, Crook, and Frazier. What all this means is that the Cubs may have some tough decisions to make in the coming few weeks. There's an argument that they should release Jason Hayward, Frank Schwindel, and Rafael Ortega right now to clear up roster space, which would obviously include eating the $25 million that Jason Hayward is owed next season. Of the three, I think Ortega deserves it the least, but he'd likely be claimed by a contender and maybe land in a place where he can play in the postseason this year. Another reason why this roster crunch matters is the Rule 5 draft which puts all minor league players who are not on 40-man rosters and were either signed at 18 with five years of professional ball or signed at age 19 with four years of professional ball into a draft pool. If selected, the team that takes the player has to keep them on their major league roster for a full season in order to keep that player. The Cubs have a large number of players in this category this year. They can protect any of them by putting them on the 40-man roster by November 18th, but the Cubs will need to clear space before then. Some of the top names the Cubs are likely to protect are Brennan Davis, Kevin Alcantara, who the Cubs got back in the Anthony Rizzo trade last year, 
Bryce Ball, who came over from the Braves for Jock Peterson. Luis Devers, who's currently killing it in high A South Bend. He's 11-3 with a 0.95 whip with 96 strikeouts and 18 walks in 93 innings. And the kid's on fire and he's rising up the Cubs charts fast, so he's likely one they're going to protect. In addition to those guys, there are a number of other names, but those names include all three pitching prospects the Cubs got back this deadline. Hayden Wisniewski, Ben Brown, and Saul Gonzalez. I'll talk more about the Rule 5 implications as the season progresses and we see what moves the Cubs make and which guys play their way into or out of playing time. For now, enjoy continuing to see Ian Happ and Wilson Contreras and the interesting pitching development the Cubs have shown lately. Another great start from Justin Steele this week. After taking two of three from the Miami Marlins, the Cubs have a three-game set at home against the Nationals before emerging from the cornfield in Dyersville, Iowa for the Field of Dreams game and a somewhat strange eight-game four-city road trip against the Reds, Nationals, and a single game against the Orioles. If this team plays well, it's a time when they could put up a pretty good stretch of baseball. That said, I'm not super invested in the record the rest of the way, especially now that the draft picks are awarded by lottery instead of straight record. But I will be watching to see how the young arms continue to throw and to see if guys like Horner and Morrell can continue to build on the success they've had. If you have the marquee network, this is also a really good time to be sampling some minor league action, especially the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, the South Bend Cubs, and the Tennessee Smokies. You may see a lot of talent that will be in Chicago sooner rather than later. Thank you for your time and support. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the Cubs PS Plus podcast wherever it is that you find your podcasts. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate your leaving a review. It will help others find this podcast. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the state and direction of the Cubs or the state of and direction of my performance on this podcast. So please follow me on Twitter at Cubs PS Plus, all spelled out, and let me know what you think. Welcome back, Wilson and Ian, and go Cubs!